Well, take your Bible and let's go to 1 Samuel 17 and chapter number 17, verses 12 is where we're going to begin this morning. And we're going to go through the end of this chapter today, or almost to the end of this chapter, to uh, wrap up the story that we so well know as David and Goliath. Just say one moment before we get started here about our missions month and the month of March as we're praying about this, excited about it, excited about having, we have three missionary families that will be coming with us on the last Sunday of the month of March and uh, they're going to be sharing their heart for world missions and what God's called them into doing and I want you to meet them and get to know them. Uh, we'll be releasing a schedule here in a couple of weeks of all that will be happening during that month. Um, really excited about what God's doing with our missions program and that is through your faithful giving again, we'll say more about that in the weeks ahead, but I want you to keep in prayer with me on the missions month for the month of March. Uh, how many of you know that we are in a battle, that there is a spiritual battle going on, and that um, the enemy does not want the kingdom of God to advance, and he'll do everything he can to discourage the work of God from going forward. And uh, we've been given a formidable weapon, and that weapon is to pray. And we can get on our knees before God, and someone said, well, when, you, when you've done all, you can pray. When you've done all you can, then you can pray. And I'm going to say this, really, you can't do anything until you've prayed. Um, and ultimately, let's start with prayer. Let's start before we even decide, hey, we're going to give something to World Missions, or we're going to go to help a missionary, let's get on our knees and ask God, God, what would you have us to do? Um, when Jesus was admonishing the disciples, he looked at me and said, the fields are white already to harvest. He said, look at this need. And the very next words out of his mouth was, pray you therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers in the harvest. And so we start with prayer when it comes to missions. And so let me ask you to join me in prayer over the next several weeks as we uh, lean into our missions month in the month of March, just a few days ahead of us now. Well, if you found your place in uh, 1 Samuel 7, uh, 17, verse number 12, I'm going to read several verses here and uh, I'll guide you through this text as we read through it, and we'll begin reading in verse number 12. Now David was the son of an Ephthite of Bethlehem of Judah, whose name, who named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle, and the names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest of the three eldest followed Saul. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Last week we saw how Goliath was coming out and presenting his challenge. And what we see is a harmonizing of the two narratives going on here. Goliath in front of the armies challenging the people of God. David has gone back to deal with the sheep. And then in verse 17, And Jesse said to David his son, Take your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and ten loaves and carry them quickly to the, uh, to the camp to your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So what we see now is he's getting the commission to go. And to present what's going on, David travels there 
and uh, verse number 22 will pick up. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. It's an interesting study maybe to go back and look at how many times the word heard is used in this chapter. Uh, and the hearing played a role in what's going on. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he hath come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who killed him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David is now faced with the question of what he's going to do after he's heard the challenge. I want to talk to you this morning. I've just entitled our message today, Our Champion. Our Champion. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the Word of God this morning. And Father, there is much information to cover this morning, but the, the message is clear. Lord, we have a champion. Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon uh, the truth of that message this morning as we walk through this text. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen. Let me remind you, as we as New Testament believers, how we go about reading the Bible. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We read the Bible from Revelation to Genesis. And what I mean by that is not to say that you've started your Bible reading schedule in the wrong place, all right? It's okay to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation on a yearly basis. I commend it to you. But my point being is that we don't start with a lack of information. We start with the culmination of the story. We already know where the story is going. We know what's happening at the end of the story. And so when we read back into the Old Testament, we read with some insight of what's happening. Um, and I, I know this might seem weird to you guys, but um, I have the Georgia National Championship recorded. And I have watched part of that at least five times since that night. I just turn it on and watch it again. And I'm like, this is where he picks him off, right here. He's going to get the interception right here. And I enjoy watching it again and watching it again. And watching it again, and I want to cancel the service, go home and watch some now. Uh, but it's, it's, there's something about you know where the story's going and still you enjoy the narrative of how it plays out. And you can rejoice and anticipate of what's about to happen. And I, I can't help but read these Old Testament accounts of Boaz and Ruth and Joseph and Moses and David and Gideon and Jonah and know where the story is going, and know what the story points to, more than just their story specifically, but the story as a whole. I mean, I read the book of Ruth, and the Bible tells us it was her hap to light upon a field. But just by chance, she went by Boaz's field. How many of you believe it was by chance she ended up in Boaz's field? No, God orchestrated that. God is, and she said, we have a kinsman redeemer. And I, I can't hardly sit still in my chair reading that because I know what that's pointing to because I'm reading the Bible from Revelation back to Genesis. Now, often I'll use the word type. 
and I've done that a few times on Wednesday night and here on Sunday morning, that this person is a type of Christ, or this is a type of the gospel, or this is a type of something. And when we, we talk about a type, what do we mean by that term? We mean it is a person or a thing that is pointing us in part to the full reality of Christ. It is a person or thing that points us in part to the full reality of who Christ is. And so when you look at the Old Testament, you see many things that are types, and we're told that they're types. We're told that they are a type of what Christ will be. When we think of the veil in the temple, that is a type or a picture or a symbol of who Christ is. That veil was a very thick veil, and it separated the holy place from the most holy place. And no one but the high priest could enter into that most holy place and what do we see in the New Testament when Christ died on, on the cross? The veil was rent from top to bottom. It was torn in two. And then Hebrews comes in and tells us that that veil was his flesh. It pictured the broken body of Christ. And as they walk through that veil, we understand that we come into the presence of a holy God through the broken body of Christ. And that is a type. And so when we read the Old Testament veil, you can get excited about the details of that veil because you know it's talking about Christ. And it, it points us in that direction. Hebrews says that these things are shadows and figures of what is to come. Jesus tells us that every book of the Old Testament in Luke 24, 13 through 35, he said, they speak of me. Jesus tells the Pharisees that the scriptures testify of him. And all of these things are pointing us back to who the person and work of Christ is. Now last week we left David serving with the sheep. Goliath was raging with pride and Saul and Israel were trembling with fear. Forty days of mockery, forty days of fear, and no one has stepped forward. Hopelessness no doubt begins to take hold in the rank of the nation of Israel. Nobody here knows that Israel's champion is about to step on the stage and show himself mighty. Nobody knows what's happening yet, but a young shepherd boy is leaving the sheep and making his way to the battle lines. What I want to do is break our, our time up in the next few moments that we have together, and I want to break it up into the story, the symbol, and the so what. And we're going to break it down that way. The story, I want you to see the story, because here's the thing I don't want you to miss. This is a real story with real people who lived in a real time, and David killed a real giant with a real stone and a real sling. It happened. It's a reality. And so we have the story, but I want you to see what it symboled or what it was a type of, and then I want to point us to the so what and how it applies to us. Now David comes onto the page of Scripture again. We've seen David already with a harp in his hand. Now we find him leading some animals toward the battle. He has a few-hour walk ahead of him now, about 12 miles or so. When David left his home uh, that morning, he did not know what was going to face him. He had no idea that there was a giant on the forefront. And, and we think in terms of, you know, 7, 8, 12 miles, it's not that far. We drive that all the time. But can you imagine walking 12 miles? Walking 12 miles takes you a good little jaunt to get there. And you would be at a safe distance from the battle at 12 miles. Uh, in that day and age, you would have not even been a part of the battle. You may not even known the battle had gone on. And this man is walking back toward the battle. Now, we don't know what's going to face us in the day. And David is going into this battle. 
And let me just make a, a statement here this morning that you neither you or I know what today holds. And so let's go in prayer saying, whatever today holds, God give us grace to face it. David walks forward, humbly obeying his father. His father comes to him, gives him foods and gifts, wants him to go and find out news from his brothers of what's going on. David makes the journey, and as he gets to the journey, Goliath has been doing his challenge every day for 40 days, and this morning he wakes up, and it seems that he has arrived at the camp just about the time that the Goliath is about to come out and make his next challenge. So here he gets to the camp, and he greets his brothers and begins to talk with them, and uh, verse number 23, and he says, and as he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath. By Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spake the same words as before. So here he shows up on the scene. I see him hugging his brother's neck. I see him exchanging, hey, dad sent these to you. Here's some breads. Here's some cheeses. How are things going? And then all of a sudden, before they can answer, Goliath answers. Send me a man to fight. I defy the armies of Israel this day. Who is your champion? Whatever happens to him will happen to you. Whatever happens to me will happen to our people. And he sends the challenge out again. Now let me make something very clear. Jesse is not orchestrating David to go down and fight Goliath. David isn't orchestrating this. But rather God has sent David to this place at this time to show himself mighty. And what would have stopped David from waiting for another few days to go? There's a providence of God that brought him to this hour. God is putting a picture on display. As we know, David being the youngest of the three of the eight brothers, three brothers were already in the battle with him, and David had gone back and forth from tending the sheep to serving with Saul. And at this time of battle, it is arguably fair to say that it wasn't time for a whole lot of heart playing. And so, David, you can be relieved of duty and go home. There's a battle at hand. Now, in all of this, in this entire chapter, as a matter of fact, we hear nothing of David being anointed. David doesn't mention his anointing. He doesn't mention the fact that God had called him for a special purpose. David is simply serving, and he seems to make no distinction from playing a harp to tending sheep. It's whatever God has in front of him to do today, David is willing to do. And by the way, that's a good way to approach life. That no matter what we are given to do, let's do that with all of our might and all of our strength and for the glory of God. That everything we do that way. I do think it's interesting that David uh, gets off his, or he gets to the place where it is and he rises early in the morning and he gets the camp and the camp is going out to the battle lines and shouting the war cry and David runs out and he shouts for the battle. He's like, here we go. All right, it's time to line up. I didn't miss the fight. And David is excited to be there himself. He hears the threats of Goliath. And I think it's just interesting here in verse 23, the very last line of it, and David heard him. Everybody else had heard already, and they had heard, and what was their response? Fear. David hears him, and he goes, who is this guy? What, what's the plan? What are, we, what are we doing for this guy? And he's like, what? It's bothering David. He's not running in fear. And I, I kind of picture when Goliath coming out, you know, everybody kind of jumping for cover. You know, and they're kind of like, whoa, there he is again. And David's kind of like with them, and they all duck, you know. And he's like, what, what are we hiding from? What's going on? You know, and he's nervous too all of a sudden. He's like, oh, he's challenging somebody to go fight. Oh, no problem. Who's going to go? 
You guys got it. Who's, where do I get in line? David's like, I'm sure there's a line of people ready to fight this guy. Where's the line? Let me get in line. You know, because if one of you guys don't get him, I'll take him next, you know. And I, I get this sense of there's just a trust that God had sent them into the battle and that God was going to give them the victory. And David's not even questioning it as he gets to the battle. The story, they said, well, hey, the king's really excited about finding somebody to be a champion. He's going to let you marry his daughter. He's going to make your family free of taxes in the, ta- in the whole uh, nation. You won't have to pay any taxes anymore. And, man, you're, you're going to be somebody if, if you go and kill this giant. And when we get to this passage of Scripture, verse number 26, David said to the man who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistines and takes away the reproach from Israel? Now, this is where I wish we had a voice recording of what was happening. At least so we could hear the inflection in his voice. Because they already told him what was going to happen. But if they could hear some inflection, it could be like, what are we doing for the guy? Why are we doing this? Kind of like, you guys are getting paid to fight in the first place. Why are you doing this? It's almost like incredulous is the way I kind of hear him read it. Maybe it wasn't that way. Maybe he was like, okay, hold on. Fill me in again. What are you doing for the guy? You mean I get to marry her? And we don't know who she was anyway, so he may not want to marry her. But nonetheless, he's like, what, what happens here? And so David is facing this story, and he's asking the question. They said, hey, he's going to do all this for him. Now I want you to see in verse 28 the misdirected anger, anger of Eliab. Verse number 28, David is asking around, and they repeat him the answer in verse 27. And then verse 28, Eliab steps on the scene. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke of the men, to the men And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Now that is interesting, isn't it? Goliath has been raging against the the name of God and the people of God for 40 days. And the first person you get mad at is David. You haven't thought to get angry at Goliath yet? But he says he's angry at David. And he says, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. It begins to rage on him. The word here is anger means his nose flared. There you go again, David. He's, He's aggravated. He's visibly disturbed by what's happening. His anger burns or kindles within him. You know, I wonder how many times when we hear someone else saying, hey, how do we move this thing forward? Does it bother us? Somebody said that a, 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 a fanatic is somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. Because they get a little more wound up about it than you are. David is stirring up the status quo at the moment. He's causing a dis, dissettlement in the, in the camp and Eliab's not really happy about that. He's like, David, go back with the sheep. We were fine hiding out in our tents. Now you're putting us all on the spot. Now you're stirring up a conversation that he didn't want to have. We see in verse number 28 that sometimes the attack comes from people on our own side. He questions his purpose. He belittles his role and his work. He presumes him guilty of wrongdoing and ill motives. He assumes his motives are wrong. 
What height of arrogance that Eliab has in this moment, who's had 40 days to do something about Goliath, and David comes asking questions about what needs to be done, and he's angry with him and tells him that he has wrong motives. When we imply the motives of others, we become, it is because we recognize our, our own motives inside of us, I think, in times. I think often the implied motives we put on other people is simply a reflection of our own motives, if we were in that situation. And here he puts him uh, to shame almost and shames him. And I, I love how David responds to him in verse 29. And David said, what have I now done? Was it not a word? Is there not a cause, the King James says? Is, not, is this not the cause or the call that we should rally behind? Is this not the reason we're here to do battle? Is this not the word that we should all be saying? This is kind of the idea. Is this not what we're supposed to all be agreeing to here? David turns immediately from those who were shaming him, and he asks the questions again. And why is he asking the question? I think he's starting the conversation. He's trying to keep the conversation moving forward. You know, hey, you know, he knew the facts already. David had the facts already laid out for him. But I think he turns to another group of people, hey, guys, tell me again, what is he going to do for the guy who kills him? Well, this is what he's going to do. And they answer him again in the same manner. And he's stirring this conversation. And we see a willingness of David, his confidence in God. And he meets up with Saul. Saul hears the word. Verse 31. And when the words of David were spoken, were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with the Philistine. And he said, hey, I'll volunteer. No big deal. I'm good. Don't worry about him. It's all good. I'm here. Now, we get the idea from Saul's remarks and from Eliab's remark that David may have been a mighty man, a strong man, but he was no physical match for Goliath. This is not, this is not the guy who was going to take down Goliath. I get the sense that David was not as big a man as Saul was. Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone in the nation, and David comes in. I think he was probably, uh, we know that he was a good-looking man. I get the idea that he was not, uh, we don't get this little weak, skinny, scrawny kid. That's not what we're looking at. But nonetheless, he's no match for Goliath, and he's not a man of war. He's not been a man of war from his youth. David's willingness is clear. His confidence in God is sound, but Saul doubts him. Now, I want you to notice here again the reason why everybody doubts David in this story and the reason why they fear Goliath in this story. Because of the way David looks on the outside and the way Goliath looks on the outside. But didn't we just learn in the last chapter when God was talking to Samuel that remember that God doesn't look on the outside, he looks on the heart? That the confidence shouldn't be placed on what David looks like and the fear shouldn't be driven by what Goliath looks like, but ultimately we ought to be looking to God to determine who will win this battle. And David understands this, I believe, as he's walking into this moment, but everybody looks at David and says, hey, look, man, you can't do this. This is not you. Saul said to David, you're not able to go up against him, verse 33, this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep the sheep of the father. There came out a lion and a bear and took a lamb from the flock. And I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And he rose up against me and I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. 
Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. I want to look at Saul and say, You chicken liver. What is your deal, man? You just heard a rousing sermon about what needs to be done for the things of God and what God is able to do. And he's like, good luck to you, man. Go. He doesn't respond, but he's happy to send David into the battle. He tries to give him untested armor, and he puts this armor out of his own armory on him. And no doubt it was to be some kind of act of honor. And David puts it all on, and he says, look, I can't go with these. I've not tested these. I've not tried these. David throws them all off. And he takes with him his staff, his sling. And he stops on the way out and chooses five smooth stones to put in his pouch. He begins to walk out to the battlefield in verse number 42 again. And when the Philistine looked and saw David. He's making the observation from the outside that David is going to fail. And he says, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistines cursed David by his God. And the Philistines said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And all this mocking goes forward from David. He said, what are you doing out here? You're sending a kid out here with a stick to knock me around. What do you think I am, some dog? That you're going to run off with a stick? And he adjures him or curses him by the name of his gods. And he mocks David. And, and then he gives him this great insult at the end of it. He said, I'm going to turn your body over to the beast of the field. And that would be an incredible injury of disrespect and dishonor. To leave the body on the open field. And he says, that's what I'm going to do to you, David. And he said, not only to you. He said, I'm going to do it to your whole army. Goliath rebukes David. Saul has questioned David. Goliath disdains David. David now stands in the middle of the field. No reinforcements. Nobody to stand with him to give him the fight. Goliath responds with sheer pride and self-glory. Now I remind you again that pride goeth before destruction. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. David's response. As we look at David in verse number 45, we pick up David's narrative response here. And he says, verse 45, Then David said to the Philistines, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Man, David, I like that. This guy believes in a God who can do something. He believes in a God that is able. Is it any wonder that the nation rises up and follows behind a man who is following God? And by the way, if you want the family husbands to follow you, follow God. Follow God with a passion that believes God can do something. Teachers, you want your class to follow you. Follow God with a passion to believe that God can do something. 
David with a passion stands before. He doesn't deny the strength of his enemy. And he does not point to Goliath, his own ability. It's interesting that he said, hey, Saul, let me tell you my history here. I faced a lion and a bear, and God delivered them both into my hands. But when he stands before Goliath, he doesn't look at Goliath and go, hey, I just want you to know I took down a bear that's just as ugly as you. He didn't do that. He said, God is going to deliver you. God is going to give me the battle. I love this. He says, the name of the Lord, verse number 46, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. That phrase can get often overlooked, but the Lord of hosts, what does it mean? He's the God of angel armies. He's the God of creation. He's the God of the elements. Everything that is created is at God's disposal at any moment. When God wants to send a rooster to preach a sermon, the rooster preaches a sermon. When God wants to send a whale to get a rebellious prophet, a whale goes. When God wants the wind to blow, it blows. When God wants plagues to rise up, they rise up. When God wants to send uh, the mice into the Philistine army, they are invaded with mice. And everywhere you go, you see all of this taking place because God is the God of angel armies. He's the Lord of hosts, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the very atoms that invest this world today and make up what it is are part of his battle army. And he commands them and they move at his will. Seas part, mountains melt. And he said, this is the God whom you've defied. The Lord will deliver you into my hands. Not his skill, his strategy. It was not David's aim that killed Goliath. It was an act of faith that killed Goliath. God brought him down. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This assembly shall know that the Lord saves not with sword and with spear. The assembly would refer to both sides of the conflict in that battle. The battle is not Saul's. The battle is not Goliath's. The battle is not David's. It is the Lord's battle. Is it any wonder that David wrote, Is it God that girdeth me with strength? He teaches my hands to war so that the bow of steel is broken by my arms. David understood that it was God. Now let's weigh the battle in our minds. On one side, we have Goliath, nine feet tall, rounded off there, tall enough, nine feet tall. The name Goliath alone, as we're reading backwards into the text, gives us pause, does it not? I mean, when you say something's big, man, he's a Goliath of a man. We use it to describe something big today. And here this man is a giant standing over him. His armor weighs more than David. His spear and his sword outweigh David. The shield and a man to carry the shield is in front of him. He's experienced in battle, skilled with his weapons. Hate and murder fills his heart. On the other side, we have David standing with no armor, no shield, no sword, no experience. No armor bearer. No weapons of any size except a sling. Five smooth stones, a staff. And the Lord would fight for him. I got news for you. The contest was settled before it even started. This battle was settled before David ever approached him. And I love how the battle ensues. 
Because David is standing there in verse number 48. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag and took the stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and of Judah rose up with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharmah as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it into it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. This is an event, man. The whole thing changes in just a moment. Goliath says, enough talking. I'm going to take your head, boy. And he gets up and David says, bring it. And David does it. I'll be honest with you. If I'm David, I'm finding a large boulder. And if I know I'm good with a sling, I'm going to hide behind it. Right? It just makes sense, right? It's kind of like, you know, I'm going to hide, you know. I'm going to duck. It's not David at all, man. He draws a bead toward Goliath, and he's running directly at him with nothing but a sling and a stone, and he runs right at the giant, and the Bible says that the stone struck him in the head, sunk into his forehead, and he fell to his face on the ground. David runs up, pulls the man's own sword, kills him, cuts his head off, gruesome account, takes the head back as a trophy. All of this takes place, and what happens to the nation of Israel when they see it? They rose up with a shout. All of a sudden, somehow or another, they were brave again. All of a sudden, everybody in the army had courage now. And the Bible tells us that when the righteous are exalted, then the righteous people rejoice and they have courage. But when wickedness exalted, righteous men hide themselves. And here we see the nation of Israel rising up with courage and they go to the battle and they rush into the battle. Now we see the stone, the sling, the champion has fallen. And what is our symbols today? You see, we said to you last week a champion is someone who goes between two. And what happens to one champion happens to the people who identify with that champion. And what happens to the other, they get what happens. And David won the victory, and so his whole army had the victory. They were a part of that victory. Because David, their champion, had won the victory. Now just listen with New Testament ears for a moment. And let's see if we can't see some parallels in the life of David. He left home with a mission of mercy to his brothers and the leaders of his nation. And he was sent by his father to bring them a message. Does that sound like anybody? He was scorned by his brothers and rejected by the leaders. It's interesting, too, that when he arrives, they were feared with the people there were fearful and opposed, facing sure death. The nation of Israel was under the oppression of Rome. No champion to put forward or defense, much less a victory was ever going to come their way. 
He stepped into a hopeless time. Did not our Lord step into a hopeless time? It's almost as if we would read the New Testament and say, and we were without hope and without God in this world. But in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He came in the name of his Father to bid, yea, to destroy, to bind, rather, yea, to destroy the evil one. He came there and he faced off against the evil one and defeated him in battle. And I love this picture. This is my favorite of all of it. He faced death and defeated death that they might have life. And what I picture here is when everybody saw David leaving that battle line, what was their thoughts about David? He's a dead man. As he went down into that valley, he was as good as dead. And in a type, I think what we see is a picture of the resurrection. David went into death, faced death, and defeated death. Does that sound like anybody who went and faced death and defeated death to you? And came back victorious over death. And I, I kind of think this is where maybe Psalms 23 gives us a little insight, doesn't it? David comes from the sheepfold. And he says, you know what? I'm not the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. They were on mountains on either side. And they went down into a valley. And I picture David walking down into that valley. And he said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow. wonder who might have been casting a shadow down in that valley. Of death. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemy. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runs over. David understood that God was with him all the way. Our Lord walked into death, defeated death, and reigns victorious over death. We sit on the edge of our seats anticipating the outcome. As our Lord, our champion, goes to fight death. And as we read the story, we know what's going to happen on day three, don't we? We know what's coming on day three, and yet we still can't help but sing the song, Low in the grave he lay, Jesus our Savior, waiting the coming day, Jesus our Lord. And I remember as just a young boy was singing that song on Resurrection Sunday, and we would think about those words, and we would build to that last line, and then we would stand as a church, and we would say, Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose the victor of the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign he arose he arose hallelujah christ arose in the same way david went into the valley and pictured for us how god defeated death and satan and the grave and one fell swoop here's the picture we see he won the victory and what is more the victory he won is ours. And I'm glad to say to you today that David was not our champion. Though he pictures our champion, we have one that is better than David that is here. One that was victorious overall. So, so what? Let me just say this morning, we face a giant too, do we not? The Bible tells us the enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy we are told that in this world you will have tribulation. We understand that death faces all of our loved ones. But this morning we have a giant that we face, but we have a champion as well. 
And here is the thing that I want you to see is that if, if the enemy came to kill and do to kill and destroy, I have come, Jesus said, that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. If in this world we will have tribulation, Jesus says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We are not looking for a champion this morning. We have one. We are not waiting for deliverance. We have it now. We are not hoping for victory, but we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. This is where we stand. We are not waking up each morning as Christians and believers, strapping on our boots, putting on our sword, rallying the troops, drawing the battle lines, putting on our armor, and hoping somehow or another we can stave off the enemy just one more day, and we can just keep them from attacking today. That is not who we are today. No, we charge forward with victory in our grasp. We are not from vic for victory. We are coming from victory. You see, where we stand in human history, our champion has already defeated the giant. We are picking up swords from our tent, and we're looking at this miraculous victory that we have, and we're saying, man, I don't know how this happened, but we've already won, and we're charging into battle with the victory already in our hand. This morning, if I could put it in, in those of you who play euchre, we're playing with a stack deck. All right? Those of you that fish, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's already happened. We have the victory. It is in our grasp. You see, our go-between has won. And here's the amazing thing. His victory is ours. We have the victory. So this morning, no matter what comes our way, we need not fret. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, our champion has walked this valley ahead of us, and the giant of death lays dead in that valley. The enemy Satan may roar and he may rage, but his days are numbered and his fate is sealed. For us, the valley of death is nothing more than a monument of our champion's victory. When we stand here in this auditorium so many times and we say goodbye to another saint of God that steps over into eternity, friend, that is not a day of defeat. That is a day of victory because we know because our champion has won that we will see them again, that victory is not going to be ours. It is ours. And we rest in that confidence. He has faced death and he has risen. So as I think about this victory, I was thinking, how do I communicate that to you? And I opened with this teasingly, and I, I do so teasingly, not to be glib or to make light of it, but just to drive it home. As you know, I, I'm a fan of the Georgia Bulldogs. Don't laugh at me, all right? But I, I thought about this, and we, we, we've watched them lose so many times through the years, and just heartbreaking losses, and my son began to follow them when he was just a young boy, and he would come in, and we'd sit down and watch the games together, and mediocre teams, decent teams, and, and then we started getting decent, and we were like challenging for championships and playoff positions, and we were excited about seeing all these things happen, and, and we were cheering with them and excited about them, and I, I remember the other night, we were watching that championship time, and the, the game was getting close to the end, and 
there was that sealing moment where the interception took place and we knew the game was over and the victory was ours. And man, we came out of our seats and we were just like, yes, you! And I looked over at my son, the tears just running down his face and we just moved by, we're going to win this thing! It's ours! We won it! And that was the language in the house. We're going to win this. I got news for you. I've never been to Stanford Stadium once. I've never sat in a college football game ever in my entire life. I've never played for Georgia Bulldogs. I've never put on a set of their pads. I've never met one of their players or coaches. But I picked my champion. And when my champion won, the victory became mine too. You see, you and I, we've never been to the cross of Calvary. We've never defeated death. But in Christ, I have been crucified. In Christ, I have been buried. In Christ, I have been resurrected. In a far greater reality than any sports team or any victory that we identify with, we understand that the victory is ours because Christ is our victor. He is our champion. So in the noise of daily struggle, we may be tempted to think that the battle has turned against us. We may be tempted to look for relief from another champion. Let me just say to you this morning, set your eyes on things above. Help us, Lord, to see you have clearly won the victory. And as Paul concludes it in the resurrection chapter, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We're operating from a stacked deck this morning. The victory is ours. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray, Father, that what is said this morning, Lord, would just resonate into our hearts, that, Lord, we would understand that we have a champion, that we have the victory. Holy Spirit of God, do a work in our hearts. With our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, no one looking around. On occasion, we open just a time for prayer. If you're here this morning, and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't know this victory that we speak of, don't put it off. Grab someone today. Come here to the front at the end of the service today, and we'll take a moment and open the Word of God and talk with you about this. You can have it settled in your heart. Believer, this morning, if you're walking half in and half out of the victory you've won, I got news for you today. The, the trophy's already on the shelf. The parade's already ready to go. The victory is ours. We can rest in that victory. Not what we've done, what he's done. Let's stand to our feet this morning. We'll sing together.